0: God's Mouth, written by Abracadabra. I huffed and I puffed under my breath as I stared into God's mouth. I felt like the big bad wolf ready to interrupt the three innocent little pigs as they hurriedly fortified their makeshift homes. I grinned at this thought, and then turned my head to look at Margaret. She was a couple of feet down the hill from the entrance of the cave, Holding a walking stick close to her. Hurry up! I called down to her. I turned back to the cave, still grinning. An old, rotted sign outside read God's Mouth Cave. Keep out. What a tired cliche. Margaret finally made it into the entrance and stood beside me, almost double over and out of breath. I looked down and smiled. Check it out! I laughed. God's Mouth. Wonder where Jesus' anus is. I chuckled to myself. Margaret was less amused. Give me the damn water bottle, she said, exasperated. The open bottle met her lips, and for a moment I felt peaceful, in a way, watching her drink the water. Actually, I take that back. The peaceful comet, I mean. It was more of a feeling that was sort of hard, to put my finger or give it a name but I could settle for a nice content. Content seemed to be one of those words that manifests itself when natural, human words seem to fail. Again, an utter cliché, but it felt good to feel a strange, mixed-up sort of happy, for once. I sighed and turned my flashlight on. I pointed into the cave. Black. God's mouth. This seemed like the antithesis of a Holy Spirit's. I turned again to Margaret. You ready? I asked. She was finally standing straight up. She nodded. I clapped a friendly hand to her back, and we walked into God's mouth. The inside was not unlike the preview I had glimpsed outside with my flashlight. Dark, dismal, and endlessly black. It seemed to stretch endlessly, no matter how I positioned my flashlight. The rocky terrain was damp and imposing. The last natural light slowly disappeared behind Margaret and I as we made our way deeper and deeper. I found it strange how soft and compelling the world around me now appeared. Despite the stalactites, stalagmites, and other various rocky formations being so jagged, it seemed that even amongst the pointed teeth of God, I could lay down and rest here forever. I was comfortable. Apparently, Margaret didn't agree. She shivered uncomfortably under my arm. I raised my eyebrows. Need your coat? I asked. I tried to look at her and make nonverbal communications as explicit as possible, until I realized that we were lost. Inky blackness of the mouth. I bit my lip and waited, but she didn't respond. For a couple minutes, we walked in silence. She stopped and stood motionless. I stopped, too. Why the hell are we even here? She said. She sounded irritated. I shrugged, more to appease myself than her, and shoved my flashlight under my face. Bladed shadows obscured my face and the other half illuminated in a wretched mask. Spooky, I cried, chuckling. She didn't move. I sighed. I thought you wanted to go, I said. Notice how my voice echoed against the cave walls, at any volume. I mean, I began again, scratching at my chin. You did say you wanted to see some nature for our vacation, and you did sound impressed when I told you about my visit to Mammoth Cavis a couple years back. So... My voice drilled off. I could still sense her irritation. No, she said. I frowned. No, you wanted to go here. I wanted to go to the beach or something. But no, a cave. A cave, Nathan! She sounded more like the big bad wolf now. I know that you have this weird fetish for spelunking or something, but I don't really want to be dragged into it. Don't get me wrong, I'd love to go on a trip and get into nature and fresh air, but this? I could hear her arms flail and gestures about in the thick air. This is cave air, not fresh air. This air is practically fermenting. Plus, isn't it illegal? Can we please just leave? We both stood there. The only sound that could be heard was the electricity in the air being stifled and smothered by the damp atmosphere. Finally, I began to walk. I didn't hear Margaret follow me, but I kept moving forward. Then, Nathan, she said. Stop. Please stop. So I stopped. I'm sorry, she said. I could hear her moving closer to me. I'm tired and I'm not- I'm not used to running and climbing around like this. I'm just tired. It's okay, I said. She gripped my arm. Really, it's fine, I I shook my head. Which way is out? I don't remember. I could feel Margaret physically pause. Neither of us could remember. Somehow in the confusion of our argument, I'd forgotten which way we had been moving. Idiot, I thought to myself. I should have brought a goddamn rope or something to trail in the entrance of the cave. I had to take action, so without much thought, I turned 180 degrees and said, This way. We walked for what seemed like hours. My feet were tired and sore, and I could hear Margaret's groans from behind me. She held my hand tightly. I felt terrible. This was my fault. Then I froze. Hey, hey, I said. Put your hand out. Feel this rock. I could hear Margaret's bare palm press against the stone. Isn't this, like, abnormally warm? I said. She didn't say anything. I began to work my way along the wall, feeling it as I went, shining the flashlight in front of me. Suddenly, I felt a sharp pain on my head as the ceiling of God's mouth met my scalp. Ah! Crap! I shouted. Oh, Nathan, are you okay? Margaret asked. She seemed on the verge of panic now. I'm fine, I'm fine, I said. Please calm down. We'll, we'll get out of here soon, I promise. I started again, pointing my flashlight upward now to the ceiling above me. It seemed to be getting narrower. That was strange. Listen. Uh, Margaret, babe, I said through clenched teeth. I think we gotta turn around. Margaret sighed next to me. Again, we walked for a decent length. I kept my flashlight pointed upwards this time. Sure enough, the space in the cave seemed to become smaller and smaller. If there was any resonating light left in God's mouth aside from my flashlight, I'm sure Margaret would have been able to see the whites of my eyes, spreading in panic. We were completely lost. I let go of Margaret's hand and began feverishly feeling my way out. "'No, Nathan!' I heard her shout. I kept going. We had to get out. If we were lost... Nobody would be able to find us. I kept feeling along the wall until I abruptly hit a corner. Ah! I said out loud, Margaret, this seems to be a dead end. I spun around on my heel. Margaret? No answer. Damn it. I began to repeat my process again, almost running as I felt the wall pass by my fingertips. Cool, damp rocks and jagged spears. Suddenly... I found myself in a corner again. No, no, no. I shouted, Margaret! I was belting her name out now, in the corner of the cave's ma where I had been around so many times before. I heard a noise. It sounded like a muffled static from a television. I pressed my ear against the rock. It seemed to be getting even warmer now. I heard the faint sounds of Margaret on the other side of the rock. She was screaming. No, 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 I said no, no, I began running haphazardly into walls around me. With dawning realization came a wave of sheer horror. There was no entrance. There was no exit. Only these four corners and me. I could feel blood begin to trickle from the cut I managed to get by bashing my body into the cave's walls. They were closing in on me. They were coming in for the kill and soon they would be pressing in on my skull and crushing my ribcage. I sat there for hours waiting for death. My flashlight was becoming dim and blinky. Finally, I felt the soft touch of these rocky walls press against my back. I began to cry as I laid down on the ground. I let my flashlight roll on the small hills of stone as I quietly stayed prone. Tears dripping down my face. I turned and looked at the flashlight. Its last fading beams of light pointed at something not far away from my face. I squinted in the darkness. My eyes widened, and I felt tears fall even harder from my face. The rocks were piercing my skin now, and blood dripped from all sides. There, in the last light of my flashlight was the appetizer. The spotlight shone on a hand those nails were painted red and I screamed in agony as I watched God's mouth chew its latest meal. The Portraits, aka The Cabin in the Woods, written by Anonymous. There was a hunter in the woods who, after a long day of hunting, was in the middle of an immense forest. It was getting dark, and having lost his bearings, he decided to head into one direction until he was clear of the increasingly oppressive foliage. After what seemed like hours, he came across a cabin and a small clearing. Realizing how dark it had grown, he decided to see if he could stay there for the night. He approached and found the door ajar. Nobody was inside. The hunter flopped down on the single bed, deciding to explain himself to the owner in the morning. As he looked around, He was surprised to see the walls adorned by many portraits, all painted in incredible detail. With that exception, they appeared to be staring down at him, their features twisted into looks of hatred. Staring back, he grew increasingly uncomfortable. Making a concerted effort to ignore the many hateful faces, he turned to face the wall, and exhausted, he fell into a restless sleep. Face down, in an unfamiliar bed, he turned blinking in unexpected sunlight. Looking up, he discovered that the cabin had no portraits, only windows. The Staring Doll, written by Jack Stryker Heather was at her friend Jenny's house one afternoon. It was just after school and Jenny's parents hadn't arrived home from work yet. It was just the two of them, and they were engrossed in a board game. Heather was having a good time, except they were playing in a room adjacent to Jenny's parents' bedroom. And every now and then, Heather would glance over through the open door of that bedroom to see a little girl doll sitting up on the bed. Its eyes appeared to be staring at them. She tried to ignore it, but... Over time, it started to get to her. I'm sorry, she said, but I can't concentrate. That doll on the bed over there is giving me the creeps. Oh, no problem, Jenny replied. She went to the room and closed the door to calm Heather down. Then the two friends resumed their game. It hadn't been long, however, before Heather glanced up again. The door was open once again and again the doll appeared to be staring at them. Jenny couldn't understand it. She could have sworn that there was nobody else home, and that there was no way the door could have opened without the knob being turned. Shrugging, she went up to the bedroom and closed the door again, this time making sure that it would click shut. But again and again, they would check the door and find it wide open. Heather was starting to get very scared, Finally, Jenny had enough of this. She went into the bedroom, grabbed the doll, and threw it into the closet, slamming it shut. She then slammed the bedroom door shut behind her, and then resumed their game. For a while, things appeared to be going well. But then Heather glanced up one last time. All of a sudden, she stood up and said, Goodbye, and ran home as fast as she could. This time when Jenny looked up, She saw the bedroom door only slightly ajar, with a chair propped up behind it. And sitting on the chair, peeking through the opening at them, was the doll. I moved into a haunted house, written by Andrew Scolari. So, I came into some money... You see, my aunt Martha passed away after a long battle with cancer. I was her favorite nephew, so she left me a little extra in her will. At that time, I was living with my girlfriend Tara in a run-down one-bedroom apartment in the seediest part of the city. So we decided to look at actually buying a house. We looked at several houses before we saw the one that we both liked. It was a large, two-story, late-Victorian-era house with cream-colored sidings, green shutters, and a wraparound front porch, a turret, and a second-floor balcony. It was located on the west side of the city, which was close to both of our jobs, and the price was right. So we talked to the realtor, and soon, the house was ours, and Tara and I began moving in. As we were moving our stuff, a man came by walking his dog. He looked at us and at the U-Haul van, then up at the house. Are you two moving into that house? He said. I was like, yeah, we are. The man looked back at the house and said, good luck. You're gonna need it. I then looked at the man and was like, what do you mean by that? The man just shook his head and said, That's old Mugsy Morgan's house you're moving into. Ain't nobody able to stay in that house for more than a few months. I thought every real estate agency in the city had given up trying to sell this property. I then asked, Who's Muggsy Morgan? The man looked at me and said, Muggsy Morgan's long gone now, but back in the days of Prohibition... He was one of the most powerful mobsters this side of the Mississippi. And this was the story he told. Michael Muggsy Morgan was the top boss of the city's Irish Mafia. He and the Morgan Gang controlled the entire West Side by 1920. The East Side was controlled by the Italian Mafia's Falcone Gang, led by Rocco Falcone. Throughout the 1920s, the Morgan and Falcone Gangs had an on-and-off feud trying to be in control of the entire city. Muggsy Morgan ran his gang out of his house, which led to his downfall. In 1929, while having a meeting, members of the Falcone gang broke in and massacred the entire Morgan gang, including Muggsy himself. And just like that, Rocco Falcone and his gang were the top dogs in the city. But old Rocco's grip on the city was short-lived. In 1931, his partners double-crossed him, and Raka wound up sleeping with the fishes. After he was finished, the man said, If I were you, I'd start looking for another place to live. That place, as far as I know, is still haunted by Muggsy's ghost, as well as all of his members in his gang. And with that, he walked off with his dog. Now, I didn't believe in ghosts, but Tara did, as both the house she grew up in as well as her grandmother's house, were haunted. Babe, maybe we shouldn't move in, she pleaded with me. I mean, I've heard of Muggsy Morgan before, and all that stuff the man said did actually happen. Now, I should have listened to Tara. I really should have. But I assured her everything would be fine. And that just because her childhood home and her grandma's house were haunted didn't mean that this one would be. I would soon be proven wrong. The first time things started happening was the same day. While Tara was in the kitchen putting away stuff, I was up in the master bedroom putting away our clothes. I had just opened a box of my dress shirts when I had to use the bathroom. I was gone for a minute and when I came back I saw that the box of dress shirts was gone. Even in the bathroom. I could still hear Tara putting stuff away in the kitchen downstairs. I looked all over until I found them in the hallway linen closet. I was puzzled, but I was tired. And so I just picked up the box and took it back to the bedroom. Just as I was putting the last shirt away, (coughs) I heard Tara scream. I ran downstairs and asked, What's wrong? Tara sobbed and said, I I saw a face outside of the window. It was... It was all pale like a ghost. Thinking that the man I had talked to earlier was stalking us and may have had a malicious intent, I went and found my gun, a Smith & Wesson 44 Magnum. I went outside and began looking around, but I saw nobody. I calmed Tara down and said if that man or whoever it was came around again, I'd run him off and make sure he never came creeping around again. However, things would get creepier. For the next several months, Tara and I experienced many spooky things around the house. Things would go missing and turn up in odd places. We would hear sounds, like creaking floorboards and moans, or feel cold spots. And sometimes we would see a figure just in the peripheral vision, but when we'd turn around to get a better look, the figure would be gone. Tara would always chalk it up to ghosts, but I would always try to come up with a rational explanation such as the house settling, old plumbing, drafts, our eyes playing tricks on us. That was until Tara and I witnessed something that we could not explain. That night, Tara and I had gone out to have dinner with some friends and went to see a movie with them afterwards. So it was pretty late when we got home. We opened the door, turned on the light, and the whole house was different. The furniture was old and the walls, which had previously been off-white, were now a dark olive green color. We looked around, and to our right we saw a red glow coming from under the door that led into the den. We walked to the door and opened it. Then Tara screamed. Seated around a table were the bloody shot up bodies of men in old style suits. Blood and brain matter was splattered all over the place. The bullet holes riddled the walls. Tara and I just stood there, taking in the gory scene. One of the men sat at the far end of the table. He wore a brown suit and a green bow tie. Between Chara and I, we both knew that that had to be Muggsy Morgan. Just then, Mugsy Morgan turned his head and opened his mouth to speak, but all that came out were gurgling sounds and blood. Just then the scene vanished, and the house turned back to the way it was when we left it. Me and Terra soon got out of there and went to a motel. We eventually moved into another house in a newly built subdivision. Just recently, I saw in the classifies that the Morgan house is up for sale again, with the price drastically reduced. I wonder how long it'll be before the realtors realize to just give up on that accursed house and just let the city demolish it. The Thing in the Window Written by Anonymous I'm pretty freaked out. That thing had been there for almost a week. The figure in the window. It looks featureless. Only skin on human frame. And it's pressing itself against the class somehow. I don't know how it got there. And I don't know how to get rid of it. At first I thought it was a prank. A doll or a mannequin that some jerk put there to scare me. But I realized as I walked out of my house to pull away, it wasn't there. I shrugged it off thinking that it was someone hiding it while I was walking through my window or my door. But I went back in and I looked out the same window and it was looking in, staring at me. I walked around my house yelling for whoever it was to come out, but no one was there. The thing is hairless and naked and it didn't look. Like it actually had eyes. Or even a face at all. But its head turned towards me when I enter the room. When I sit on my computer, I feel its faceless hatred boring into my neck. But when I turn around, it's innocently turned in a different direction. Finally, on Thursday, I tried to open the window. But it stuck. I think the thing's hands are keeping it down. But I got a good look at its face... Its eyes and its mouth are behind the skin, pushing outward. It stared at me, smiling. I pulled back a fist and smashed into the glass, determined once and for all to get rid of the glaring monster. I know I'm strong enough. That glass should have cracked, but it didn't. It shuddered under my hand, but it didn't break. And that smile just got whiter and whiter until I thought its head would break in half. It raised its own hand and bashed the window with its palm. It was mocking me, but I saw the faintest crack begin to appear where it hit it, and I backed away. No way did I want that smile in the same room as me. So I got a roll of duct tape and started covering the window. I couldn't look directly at it. I nearly crapped my pants, just knowing that it was watching me but I couldn't help it. I took a quick glance at the skin-covered face. A small peak. It was angry. That menacing grin was now a gaping frown full of teeth. The skin had ripped away from its mouth. A menacing rumble started to fill the house, and the hairline crack began to spread like the splintering ice. I pulled down the duct tape. The rumble stopped. The split skin healed over, and it began to smile again. Now it's night, and the noise hasn't started again. There are no sounds, no rumble, no crackling glass. Everything's quiet now, but I can feel its claws gripping the back of my chair. I can hear its skin stretching as it smiles. It's watching me type. Misfortune. g b written by anonymous originally a creepy pasta it has developed into an urban legend due to its emergence of evidence of the game's existence. It supposedly is a demonic game that is hidden within other games story. Misfortune.gb is a Game Boy puzzle game that plays disturbing music. It is considered the scariest video game ever created, according to both misfortune.gb.webs.com and the creepypasta wiki. The game revolves around what appears to be a little boy who meets a malevolent being in a strange gothic building. The being never gives its name, but it is heavily implied that it is the devil. Upon meeting the creature, a dialogue box appears with the text. I exist within the very fabric of reality. Do you want to challenge me? This is followed by a yes or no choice. Should the player choose yes, the being replies, then, let's begin. The player is then transported to a series of maze-like rooms, each filled with pit drops, locked doors, keys, and traps. The objective for the player is to survive each room by either reaching the stairs to the next level, or solving another kind of puzzle. This can be a riddle or something else, such as picking a correct door. A good example of the level is where four small cabins are shown on screen, and the dialogue box appears that reads, Choose Wrong, and Misfortune will default your loved ones. Are you ready to play? Should the player make a mistake or choose a wrong exit, etc. The screen will cut to black for a second before showing a screen of a higher resolution of the demon with a dialogue box underneath that reads, I am God here. With blood styled writing, possibly being the inspiration for creepypastas such as well known Sonic.exe. Some people who played this game and lost suddenly began to suffer from depression and there were several cases in which people committed suicide after losing the game. Other people became jittery in their everyday life, and some became physically sick. However, if they were able to complete the challenge, they seemed to continue their everyday life with no change. Also, if a player has to make a mistake in the game that would lead to game over, but the player quickly turned the Game Boy off, they would suffer no repercussions. It appeared to be viewing the game over screen. That was responsible. This led the few people who knew of the game to wonder why exactly losing the game would cause such drastic effects. The answer was the music. The music in this game is generally mature, and although being limited to the 8-bit Game Boy sound bank, the music was very dark and disturbing at best. However, the "I am God here" game over screen had especially disturbing this harmonic music that accompanied it, and is believed that it was the cause of misfortune to the player. It consisted of deep, buzzy tones and off-key melodies, and the general sound of the music was damaging to brainwave patterns. The game is not on its own cartridge, though, but hidden in other Game Boy titles, meaning you may already have the game. The game is generally accessed through glitches. Do not go outside. Written by Jordan B. Do not go outside. Ignore all cries for help, no matter how human they sound, shouted Alex's dad. He pulled the cellar door over and paused to look back. And lock this door behind me. The door slammed shut. Alex locked it walking down the stairs and stood alone in the darkness. Moonlight shining through a crack under the door. The basement was freezing cold. She looked around the room. Nothing but junk. Toys from her childhood. Broken furniture her dad refused to throw away. Stacks of books and newspapers. And her grandparents' old possessions. She rummaged around and found her grandfather's recliner chair. Well, somewhere to sit, at last, she thought, Alex dragged an old bike out of the way and pushed the chair toward the middle of the floor. She searched through a chest of her grandmother's belongings. Inside were a collection of porcelain figurines, some knitting needles, and a hand mirror. Alex picked it up, wiped some dirt away, and looked at her reflection. Over her right shoulder, she saw a blanket and some cushions stashed underneath an old photo album. They stank and were covered in dust. Everything was. But it was better than sitting there freezing. She reclined on the chair, wrapped the blanket around her, and tried to sleep. Alex was startled awake by something banging against the door. She pulled the blanket up towards her head and sat motionlessly. The banging stopped. As she was beginning to calm down, there was a gentle knock. Maybe it's just the wind, she told herself. Then came another knock. Much louder than the first. There was a knot in the pit of her stomach. She tried to stay calm and told herself over and over that it was just the wind. But was so unnerved, she retreated towards the corner of the basement and took cover behind a nearby cabinet. <sighs> Cried a voice opposite of the door. Alex's eyes widened. She crouched even further behind the cabinet.
1: Hello? Is... Is there anyone... Anybody there? Please. I... I really need... Somewhere to hide.
0: The voice was faint, and Alex could barely make it out. The knocking once again became a loud banging. Please,
1: if anyone's down there, I need help.
0: Alex's mind was racing. Who is this person? Why do they need help? Why should I let them in? Her father's warning echoed in her mind. No matter how human they sound, what did he mean by that? Alex noticed the moonlight shining through along the bottom of the door. Maybe if I get close enough, I can see who it is, she thought. She walked slowly to the middle of the room, past the chair and towards the stairs. Alex was so fixated on the door, she tripped on a pile of books and crashed on the ground, knocking over the bike and a stack of newspapers. The banging stopped.
1: (laughs) Hello? Is someone there? I can hear someone moving down there. Please, you have to let me in.
0: The voice was much clearer now, but there was something peculiar about it. It sounded cold and emotionless. Neither male or female, nor young or old. Alex moved to the bottom of the stairs and eventually summoned the courage to speak.
1: Hello? Please, yes. Hello. You have to help me. Can you let me in? Alex
0: didn't know what to do. The voice sounded desperate, but her dad's warning was clear in her mind. She was too nervous to get any closer. Yes, I'm here, but I'm not going to open the door for you.
1: What? Why? There's something horrible running around here, and if you don't let me in, it'll get me. I'm in great danger, please. Open the door quickly,
0: cried the voice. Alex felt a sense of dread overcome her. What do you mean something horrible is out there? Who are you? Look,
1: there's no time for that now. I'm in danger now. Why won't you let me in? Won't you help me?
0: The voice was getting angry. I... I won't. What? Why? Why? because earlier my dad warned me not to open the door to anyone.
1: That doesn't make any sense.
0: Please let me in. The banging against the door started again. What's out there? Why are you in danger?
1: Open this tent door now. Now!
0: The voice growled. The banging stopped and the gentle knocking started again. Alex was so scared she couldn't speak and she didn't know what she would have said if she could. She didn't want to antagonize whoever was outside any further. It sounded like they were furious. She looked at the crack beneath the door and had an idea that perhaps if she climbed the stairs and crouched down, she'd be able to look underneath. Maybe she'd be in a better position to see the person outside and what they looked like. She ascended the stairs quietly and crouched beside the door. When the knocking stopped, she froze for a moment in uncertainty before lying down and peering out. There was nothing. All she could see was the back garden. She let out a sigh of relief. Maybe they were gone. She had just turned to walk down the stairs when there was another loud bang against the door. Alex jumped in fright, forced to grab the railing to keep herself from falling.
1: Please, I'm begging you. Look me in.
0: The banging continued. Catching her breath, Alex crouched down to look outside again. She still couldn't see anything. No feet. No legs. No anything. She saw nobody under the door, yet someone was furiously banging against it begging her to let them in. Alex fought the urge to
1: cry. Please, I know you're there. I've been to terrible danger. How could you just sit there and not let me in?
0: Alex forced the door and tried to regain her composure. She had an idea. As the voice continued to plea for help, she crept down the stairs and opened her grandmother's old chest. She grabbed the hand mirror and returned to the door.
1: Please, please, please!
0: The voice begged as the banging continued. Alex lay flat on her stomach and nervously pushed the mirror towards the door. She tilted and slid it under, trying to see as much as possible. No matter what she did, Alex couldn't see anyone. The pace of her breathing quickened and she began to feel tightness on her chest. I am not opening the door. Before he left, my dad warned me not to open to anyone. I don't know who you are, and I don't know why you're here. You shout about needing help and being in danger, but you won't explain why.
1: But I told you.
0: And besides, I can't see you underneath the damn door. You're hiding somewhere. I can see the back garden through the slit under the door with my mirror. But I can't see you. If you just want help... Why are you hiding? She pulled the mirror back and stood up. The voice began to laugh.
1: You're smart to keep the door shut. Your dad was right to warn you.
0: The voice sounded calmer this time, nearly whispering. What do you mean? Who are you?
1: I wasn't lying before. There is something horrible out here.
0: You're just some maniac trying to scare me. Alex turned to walk back down the stairs.
1: Oh, really? Put your mirror back down and have another look.
0: Reluctantly, with a hand on the rail, Alex crouched down and peered through the crack again. Nothing. Her hand was trembling. You're still hiding. Why do... Closer. The voice said, softly. Alex got down on her front and slid toward the door, straining to see as much as she could in the mirror. She could barely keep her grip. Almost there. Pausing for a moment, Alex took a deep breath and pressed her head as close to the door as she could. Then, sounding as though it were mere inches in front of her, the voice whispered. Alex screamed in fright as the mirror was ripped from her hands and pulled away from her. She screamed again, and the voice started laughing. This was followed by more banging, faster, and with more force than ever. Alex raced back down the stairs. She crouched down behind the chair, stared at the door, and burst into tears. The banging kept getting louder. The cellar door sounded as though it was about to break. I'm not letting you in! Go away! Go away!" On the verge of hysteria, Alex collapsed behind the chair. After taking a moment to regain her composure, she stood over the chair and took a deep breath. What... what are you? The banging stopped.
1: What difference does that make? You know I'm out here, and you won't let me in.
0: The voice sounded, amused. Tell me what you are.
1: It would be much easier to show you. Why not open the door? And I can.
0: No! She screamed. Tell me what you are. And tell me why I can't see you. The voice laughed and started banging on the door again. Alex climbed behind the cabinet, pulled the blanket over her head, and covered her ears with her hands. She rocked back and forth until she was calm enough to lie down. The banging turned into gentle knocking, and then grew fainter and fainter, until at last it stopped completely. She tried to calm herself down and steady her breathing. She lay in silence for what felt like minutes, or maybe it was hours. Unsure whether she was awake or asleep, then there was another knock at the door, less violent than before. Alex! Alex, are you there? It was her father's voice. She crept out from behind the cabinet, looked at the door, and saw sunlight shining through. Alex, it's Dad! Alex, are you there? Please! Please tell me you're alright! She leapt out from behind the furniture and looked at the stairs. Under the door, she could see the shadow of her dad standing outside. Alex let out a sigh of relief and raced to the stairs. Dad! Where were you? There was something outside and was trying to get me to open the door. Alex, honey, thank God you're safe. Come, open the door. We have to get out of here now. She undid the lock and burst through the door, ready to hug her dad and let out a crying relief. Dad, I... Alice looked around in confusion. She couldn't see her dad anywhere. The garden was empty. Dad? Dad? She was overcome with terror. Alex ran back into the basement, slammed the door shut, and bolted the lock. She shot back down the stairs and stood quivering in the middle of the room. She frantically looked around, making sure she was alone. Some books collapsed from the pile in front of her, and she screamed. Just some books She thought as she tried to catch her breath, feeling a sense of unease. Alex climbed back beneath the cabinet and pulled the blanket over her head. There was a gleeful whisper.
1: So nice of you.
0: Slender Woman, written by Lynn. Darkness, though not complete darkness, surrounds you. A full moon shines through the treetops and slightly illuminates the fog surrounding you. The flashlight you were holding has flickered out. You look around, frantically, fear swarming your insides. Surely someone would have noticed you missing from the campsite. All the bravery that had convinced you to try and see what you had caught a glimpse of earlier has vanished and you are all alone. Your imagination starts to wander as your heart rate rises. You hear a twig snap somewhere near you and all the stories that have been told around the campfire rush to your mind all at once, especially the one your brother had told you. What was the name of that creature? He has no face. Another twig snaps in the distance. No eyes. No mouth. No nose. You madly search your surroundings, but it is impossible to see anything in this fog. He supposedly lives in the woods, but that is only a story, right? Your thoughts escape you when you see the outline of a figure, but this is no man. This person is quite obviously a female. She is wearing a black dress that seems to hug her, yet flow around her all at once. And you see her eyes glistening in the moonlight. Gorgeous, shining eyes. You are unable to look away. Why had you been so scared? Comfort fills you as you walk towards her. There's something off about her, but you can't quite put your finger on it. There is calmness filling your body like a drug when you are within feet of her. You notice what it was that was peculiar about her. Those beautiful eyes are a dark, midnight, soulless black, yet you still are captivated by them, unable to look away. Fear starts to burn again in the pit of your stomach, but it is instantly put out, like a fire doused with water. You try fighting this calmness, but your willpower escapes you as you drown in this amenity. Why would you ever want to leave this gaze... What you do not notice is her mouth, or lack thereof, rather. You are so far gone that you do not even realize that she is completely bald. Her entire body, except for her inky black eyes, is a smooth alabaster white. You have stopped walking, yet you still seem to be moving towards her, or floating, better yet. Towards her, towards her eyes... Until all at once everything is black, just as black as those eyes that had lured you. Then there is nothingness. In an instant, you cease to exist. Who is this woman of the night? You might ask. She is everything, yet she is nothing. She has no soul, yet she owns millions. She is comfort, yet she is fear. She was created by a creature of death, so that he could have something to love. So again, she is death, yet life, and hate, yet love. She is Slender Woman. Confused and Pointless Written by April. I woke up the next morning, and the school bus wasn't there yet. My mom made me some breakfast, and I went downstairs to eat it. When I was downstairs, she opened the cabinet door and took out some cereal. I was eating the cereal, then the bus showed up, and I ran outside. But my mom called me, and she said, you forgot your pencil. So I ran back and grabbed my pencil. On the bus, I was freaking out. I didn't know why. I just felt uneasy. I don't know if it was just the day, the month, or the year. But something, something terrible was going to happen today. And I just don't know what it's going to be. We got to school at around 9 30 a.m i saw my friend john and i went up to him and said hey what's up john john looked at me with a weird face and he said is that you april i said no what do you mean my name's billy he said oh i'm sorry i got confused you're the first one i saw today I was confused as well. Anyways, here's that pencil you let me borrow. Ah, thanks. We walked to our next classroom, holding hands. Then he looked down and said, Why are you holding my hand? I looked at him and said, Why not? He just shrugged. So we went to the classroom. I saw my teacher, Miss Johnson. She told us to take out our library books. The ones we picked out at the library. We had to do a documentary on which one was our favorite book. So I took out Dr. Seuss's The Cat in the Hat. Our presentation started. I froze. I didn't know what to say. Because in fact, I actually didn't write my assignment. Next period, I was in recess. We were outside. I had some friends running, but I don't know where they were running to. I was confused. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know why he called me April. Did my mom pack me that tuna sandwich? Who likes Coca-Cola? There were so many questions, but little answers. I needed to know, was Batman actually a bat? Anyways, I went back to college, and I saw my friend. We went to lunch, ate some food, then we took a nap. When I woke up, I was outside. I was on top of my roof. For some reason, I blanked out and I was on top of it. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what month we were in. I didn't know anything. I forgot my name. Was it Billy? Or was it April? Too many things were happening today. But anyways, yesterday, my hamster was in school. It was show and tell, and we had to show off our brothers and sisters. So I brought him. I showed the class my hamster. As I was zipping up my pants, everyone was shocked. I don't know why. I showed them my hamster that night. My dad left to go get some milk. He never came back. I don't know why. Anyways, my mom yesterday was having a great day. Until we were in the car. And in the car, we were driving. And we were passing by so many buildings. We finally stopped. And we went inside a Publix. The Publix had so many things. But I wanted crayons. But my dad said no. No crayons for you, Timmy. So I just looked down and started crying. When I looked back up, we were at Walmart. I saw my dad. I saw him picking up milk. I saw him drinking the milk. There was so much milk. Then he left again. He started dating his brother. I don't know what to say to that. My mom's not even my mom, it's actually my grandma. He never did anything for us. My mom died giving birth to me. I know this doesn't make any sense, but it makes plenty of sense, because it makes sense. Outside I like to pick little bugs and eat them. When I do, people look at me weird. I don't know why. But they do. People tell me that Batman is better than Spider-Man. But I just look at them. And I go, Why not Gorilla Grodd? Anyways, When the school was done, We grabbed some Molotov cocktails. And we burned my house down. We went back to the school. And burned that down too. Me and my friends, we... We're not great kids, but we love holding each other's hands. When we burned down the school, a lot of people came out on fire. I don't know why they were on fire. We went to Six Flags three days before. It was so cold. The water was piercing my eyes. I didn't have a jacket. I don't know what to do with my hamster. He keeps waking up in the morning and bothering me throbbing I don't know what's going on hopefully he gets better he keeps throwing up he keeps eating rice and he's not supposed to moral of the story don't (laughs) look. moral (laughs) moral of the story don't hold your own hand hold someone else's hand for their hand for you because you'll never know when you'll need. <clears throat> What a great video the smell written by chris burtman it was on the third day of the stench permitting the house that we decided to call the landlord in the last month since we had moved in there had been a lot of creaking and groaning from underneath the house it was built sometimes in the 30s so the noise just added to the creepy atmosphere i kind of liked it but considering the age We figured that the plumbing must have gone bad or expanded from the heat of the summer. We hoped that the problem wouldn't be extensive. Our landlord was punctual and told us to expect the plumber by 8am the next day. The temperature in Palmdale was pushing 110 degrees that week. While intolerable, it wasn't breaking any records for the Southern California desert. The temperature was notable this late in September though. Usually by this time of year, the heat would have broken. But it had been the hottest summer in recent years, because the house was so old, there wasn't any central air conditioning. Instead, the owner had opted for a small built-in AC unit. This didn't make the house any cooler, until the sun went down. But it was cheaper than central air. We had lived in the Antelope Valley our whole lives. It wasn't the best place to grow up, but it was home. The town had deteriorated in the last ten years, and there had been an influx of homeless and vagrants in the area lately. But the price was a steal and we couldn't turn that down. When we moved in, I had placed a plank of wood over the opening to the crawl space to keep the dogs from venturing underneath the house. Every couple of days, when I walked past the side of the house, I would notice that the plank had been knocked over. We had two small dogs. It was odd to think that they were able to knock the plank down, though I had seen them do stranger things. After a few weeks, I was tired of putting the plank back, so I had placed... Some boulders I found in the desert in front of the wood to reinforce it. It seemed to hold up. I couldn't see the dogs being able to get past the boulders. Later on that evening, we saw the dogs pawing and growling at the barrier. We laughed and joked how they were mad at us for not being able to go under the house. It had been almost a week, and I felt proud of my makeshift barrier. When I went to the side of the house to dismantle it for the plumber, I noticed there was a small hole just big enough for our dogs to fit through, right underneath the boulder and plank. Those damn dogs were resilient. I removed the wood and was assaulted by the wave of humid, fatigued air. "'Good lord, it smells like death under there,' said the plumber. I offered him an ice-cold bottle of water from the fridge. "'Thanks. You couldn't pay me enough to go down there with that rancid stench.' We sat in the living room while the plumber worked. We wore the least we could get away with. Windows open, fans on high speed. I was kicking myself for not investing in a window-mounted swamp cooler like Dad had suggested. Ashley mentioned that she was hungry, and I cracked a joke about her eating the rest of my leftover parmesan from the restaurant that we had last week. She swore she hadn't touched it, but I know she had a habit of picking up my food. I'll let it go. We hadn't been shopping for groceries in a few days, so we made a plan to go after the plumber was done. Hopefully it wouldn't be too hot by then. Whatever food we still had needed to be cooked, but to cook meant to turn on the oven, and even at 8am, it was too hot to cook. Not to mention the smell didn't give us much of an appetite. JESUS CHRIST! We heard the muffled panic through the thin wooden floor of the family room. I ran from the living room towards the back door and saw the plumber through the window, stumbling from the side of the house in a panic covered in filth, trying to regain his composure. I opened the door and stood in the doorway, anxious to hear how severe the problem was. He climbed the three steps to the patio towards me. What happened, I asked. You need to call the cops, he said. What do you mean, he hesitated for a moment. There's a body underneath your house. That's what you're smelling. This isn't a plumbing issue. This is a hazmat issue. Do you have any idea how they got under there? When the police arrived, they cornered off the house, but wouldn't let us leave. After their initial investigation, they confirmed that the body was in advanced stages of decomposition. Though the coroner estimated that they had been dead for no more than a couple of days, the time of death didn't match the putrefied state of the body. We sat in the family room with the dogs. They licked our hands as we robbed them for emotional comfort, waiting for the police to question us. They didn't mention it, but I knew the police saw us as a person of interest based off the questions they asked. How old was he? What was his name? Did we know who he was? We didn't. They left after finding that our story couldn't corroborate any suspicions of foul play. We stayed with Ashley's parents who lived in town while the house was being sanitized by hazmat teams. No more than a week had passed before the coroners had finished their report. They identified the man as Jesus Paz, 66. The police confirmed his identity as one of the local homeless. The coroner mentioned that his body had bite marks and flesh missing from various locations. Hyperthermia was the cause of death. He must have crawled under the house and the heat killed him. They suspect that he had been living underneath the house for a while and either fell asleep or became trapped there as the temperature rose. I thought about the plank of wood and the boulders I set up, and it all came together. The noises. The missing food. The smell. The Real Chuck E. Cheese Written by MSD1000 Games at YouTube Have you ever thought that there was something the creators of Chuck E. Cheese were hiding something from us all? Or have you ever found something to be off about the place? Even the creepy, robotic mascots that danced on stage? I did not until I found the truth about Chuck E. Cheese. It all began on the first time I had ever visited the place. I was around the age of five or six, so I of course was pretty ecstatic to go. Seeing all those commercials of kids eating pizza and running around without a care in the world, on arcade games and on the play structure made me almost get down on my hands and knees to plead and beg my mom to take me. After finally getting her to break, she took me. I was the happiest kid in the whole world. My mom drove me over just a few hours before evening, so maybe around 4.30 or so. I also knocked over the woman at the door who gave you the little stamp on your hand, running ahead of my mom and bursting through the doors like a maniac child. Eventually I was stamped and literally screeching as I ran around all the games and playsets. After a bit, I stumbled on over to a game, like a -a whack-a-mole but with sharks, right by the staff-only room. One shark-whacking minute later, I'd won the game. Before I could squeal in success and collect my tickets, my ears caught the sound of something very strange going on near the staff-only room. I could hear someone say, Test number 15 on mutated rat results in angered behavior such as throwing desk and scientists at the wall. I then began to wonder what in the world they were talking about. Maybe they were making a new game? Being so young, I had no idea at all the things that were actually going on in there. Being curious, And feeling a bit interested i pressed myself against the door and listened in as carefully as a six year old could i could hear them snapping at each other things like what are we going to do with this beast and get it away from me a mumbled shout poured over whoever was in there and replied with a louder we can't just kill that thing it's a beast version of our mascot the talking stopped I blinked for a second and pressed myself closer to the door. I quickly realized that this was a very bad mistake. As the door opened for my weight against it, I slipped in, going from leaning on the door to falling face-flat on the ground of the staff room. Immediately, footsteps trampled over to me, hands grabbing at my arms. I was out like a light in a few seconds, and I still don't know what the hell they did to do that. I woke up slowly, my eyes feeling heavy and my body feeling weak. In some kind of interrogation room, a tall man with a serious expression, wearing the cleanest white lab coat I'd ever seen, began walking towards me out of the blue. Like he knew I'd be awake. Like he knew I was awake. His voice was deep, and it was scratchy. From what I could tell, he began to talk.
1: You know. "'You know, don't you? You know,'
0: he said. I was a six-year-old half-knocked out at a Chuck E. Cheese, so I didn't know what they expected from me. I babbled for a second, letting my tongue function correctly. "'What?' I replied dumbly, blinking hazily. He grabbed my arm, making the static feeling intensify somehow. He pulled me a bit, making me whine, though I quickly shut my toddler trap a loud banging on the door echoed through the room. Naturally, me being so young and clueless, I screamed, thrashing around. The man let me go, snapping at me to shut my mouth, forgetting about almost everything. I thrashed around some more, slipping out of my chair. I kicked my legs, going into the corner of the room. I screamed again, banging my foot against something, making a loud metal clang against my foot. I twisted around and whined down at the air vent. I kicked it again out of scared, hot anger. With another loud scream and clang, the metal front popped off. Again, letting out a shriek when I heard the man stomping towards me. Out of the noise, clawing metal and banging. I scooted inside, spitting at him. I was scared half to death. I mean, what was I doing here? Where was my mom? He swiped at me for a moment, but quickly pulled his hand back. There was another loud bang, and the man stepped back. Using my tiny little hands, I grabbed the air vent door and pulled it back, pressing it on the door, just in time. A piercing hiss followed by a shout from the stranger, and the loudest bang on the door. I crawled back, scooting back into the vent. I had to leave. Even being so young, I knew I was in trouble. I hastily turned around with a bit of a struggle, slowly crawling down the vent. A loud manly scream echoed through the vents, being followed by more. They were in unison with the sound of the cracking and tearing, which I now know was flesh and bone from the stranger. I got out as fast as I could. A small light was around the corner after a few minutes, and I stomped on it. The opening of the vent easily popped open. They really weren't paying attention to how tightly they were screwed on, were they? My feet stumbled as I climbed down, but were soon trampling to where I saw my mom last. And she was still there, with a worried expression on her face. I ran up to her, hugging her tight. My eyes now glazed with wet, hot tears. I want to go home. I whined and complained my mother gave me a strange look but put a finger on my cheek you must be real tired sweetheart she cooed picking me up i clenched my small fist holding tightly onto her shirt we walked out of the building me being so lovingly carried to the car a whir of sirens in the distance became a bit louder and louder and police cars pulled into the large parking lot and skidded to a halt in front of the once amazing and fun, Chuck E. Cheese. My mother almost ran to the car and quickly buckled me into my seat. A couple hours later, home and safe that night, I walked out of my room to get some water before I went to bed. A habit of me trying to procrastinate so I don't have to sleep, and my mother was watching the news. The reporter was talking about some kind of mutated rat coming out of Chuck E. Cheese and disappearing down the alleyways. So what happened to the real Chuck E. Cheese? God only knows, but I will never, and I repeat, never go into any damn Chuck E. Cheese for as long as I live. Gerald's Wait Written by Renny Wren Gerald was sitting in the same chair, at the same window, staring outside, waiting The first snow was falling and he remembered that the time when he played out there with the neighborhood kids all those years ago. He remembered it so vividly that afternoon. The sun had been bright, just like today, but its light didn't reach him. Not anymore. Not up here, in this ghostly room. He didn't even notice a single tear that streamed from one of his eyes. Thick, yellow, and almost syrupy. It carved a path down his sunken cheek. The shaking came over him like an avalanche, burying his thoughts. The pain that followed was worse, cutting through him, hot and ragged. It lasted for almost a quarter of an hour. The third time since noon, the seventh since he awoke this morning. It's gotten so much worse this past year. You there, he called out when as we watched the few lonely snowflakes twirling through the air. Of course. A rattling voice reaching him. So is it finally time? The voice behind him turned into a guttural giggling.
1: No, Gerald. You aren't ready yet.
0: Oh, come on. I've been ready for the past three years. I'm ready now. So why don't you just take me already?
1: Were they ready? Gerald.
0: He was about to reply, but a terrible, wet cough rattled through his body, shaking every brittle bone in it. Damn you, he screamed, but he got no reaction to his outburst. He tried to dig his finger into the armrest, tried to will himself to get up, but however much he tried, there was nothing. He had no energy left, no muscles to serve him. And so he stayed where he was, in his terrible, lonely prison. Slowly anger rose inside of him, burning anger, fiery, hotter than anything, even than the pain he felt mere months ago. Why don't you just take me already? He screamed at the quiet room. You know why, Gerald? A bodiless, grim voice whispered in his ear. Yes... I know, but I couldn't help it. I tried, but couldn't wait anymore. I just couldn't.
1: You murdered them, Gerald. Three little boys whose life you cut short that afternoon. The voice
0: continued. I know, Damn it, I know. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, so take me already. Just please, please let me
1: move on. No, Gerald. You'll wait, and you'll continue to wait, for I'm going to let you live in their steed. What time you took from them, I've added to yours.
0: The voice trailed off, a hint of devilish glee hidden behind its words. I shouldn't even be alive anymore. The heart attack, the cancer, this rotting body. Here, there's... there's not. But he broke up, for Gerald knew he was gone again. Once more, the reaper had abandoned him, and once more he left his soul to linger in his own rotten body for yet another year. The Momo Challenge Written by Seth Paul I looked at the phone. I waited for the text to come back. It was maybe about 10-15 minutes. That hideous face popped up on the screen with the reply. You
1: didn't do the last task I asked of you. Now, there will be consequences.
0: The last task was done, actually, but not by me. The phone I was holding was not mine. It was my son's. I wanted some answers. Something that would help me get through what had happened. I needed to know the truth. I wanted to know what made my son kill himself. I had thought him being secretive was just because he was a teenager. I remember when I was a kid, I tried to hide things from my family. Things I was embarrassed of. But I never expected to walk into the bathroom to find him collapsed on the floor, his wrists cut. It was one thing just to be suicide, but then there were the phrases on the walls, the symbols, all gibberish, written in lipstick, on the mirror and on the shower door.
1: She tastes all. And bend the circle.
0: The Momo Challenge was what they called it. A sick, twisted thing that looked like it was just for fun, but it terrorized people. Mostly children. I found out about it, and everything I read after my son's death made me angrier. The more I found. That weird woman's face wasn't some demon. Some creature from the pits of hell. It was just a statue that belonged on some weird bird creature thing in Japan. They used it like an avatar. Lured kids in it with the promise of some good, scary fun. Then the increasingly frightening challenges... Watch a scary movie alone was first. Then, not telling anyone about these conversations or else their personal information would get out. Then, the fear that Momo would come and get them if they didn't continue. I never expected my son to be fooled by it, but I read the conversation, the things Momo was willing to tell people. I could see why he got scared. They knew so much. All from a couple of clicks. Hacking. I never even knew what WhatsApp was. My son used it to message his friends outside of Facebook. A friend told him about the number, but was too scared to try it himself. So my son tried it. The friend never knew what was really going on, and was horrified to learn what had happened. He would have never sent it along if he had known. The police couldn't do anything. They said the number was a spoof. A useless, probably a disposable cell phone. Though it was odd that it wasn't one normally associated with Momo Challenge. They normally looked into. They knew the group did things out of South America. And there wasn't much a local officer could do. They took the phone as evidence. But after they didn't get anything with it, they returned it. And offered me their condolences. They said it wasn't worth trying to contact them. They'd given their last command. They probably would ignore the number. I didn't care. That phone sat in my son's room in a little ziplock baggie for weeks. My wife didn't want me to touch it. She didn't want anything to do with the monstrosity. She just wanted the memory of our son to stay as it was. But I wanted to know why. I wanted to know why people would do such a horrible thing. So I texted back. I didn't do your last thing. I was too scared to try. Then I got that response. Then another came through.
1: You get one more chance, and then everyone will know your secrets. Go to this address alone, it'll be fun.
0: My eyes widened. The address wasn't far from where I lived, maybe a few miles or so. If the group was in another country, they wouldn't have bothered. But this was local. Maybe I would get some answers. I left my wife asleep in her room, but I took my coat and my handgun. Funny, even though I showed my son how to handle it, I never got over the worry he might hurt himself with it, even locked it away in a locker. Now, he never would. I drove out to the address. The neighborhood wasn't great, but it didn't seem like any place I would have left unsafe walking after dark. The house itself was a bungalow, dingy gray color on the outside. No vehicles anywhere near it. There wasn't even a detachable garage. All the lights were out. I parked across the street. I got out and went in front of the door. There was a note on it.
1: Come inside, if you dare.
0: The door was unlocked. I didn't bother knocking. I entered a small hallway with a staircase going up. An entry into a little living room to the side and a kitchen straight ahead. Even in the dark, I could see the kitchen had old flaky yellow wallpaper and a small table with chairs on it. The house didn't look abandoned, just empty. I didn't see anything weird in the living room, so I went ahead into the kitchen. I tried the light switch. It flicked on, which I honestly didn't expect to work. A doorway led into a laundry room, another door led off into the back porch, and a third with a security latch on it, led underneath the staircase. The room was small, but that was it. On the back wall, there was a note on the refrigerator.
1: Look inside. I
0: opened it. There was nothing in there but a plate with a note on it.
1: Surprise.
0: I heard footsteps behind me. Thing is, whoever was attacking... Was expecting a high school kid, I'm sure. Not a grown man, and not one who played football when he was younger. I turned around and ducked down, charging the dark shape that had come down from the stairs and through the front hall. I knocked him over and hit him again and again until he stopped fighting. I couldn't believe I had knocked him out. I dragged him into the kitchen, pulled out one of the chairs, sat him up on it, and the light, I could see that he was wearing all black, including a hoodie and a ski mask. He also had a knife in his hand. I took the knife away and dug through his drawers, hoping to find some rope. I did it, but a junk drawer had a few unused zip ties. I bound his wrist and tied his feet to the chair. I pulled off his ski mask as well. He was young, maybe college age. I sat and waited for him to recover. I kept my gun on him. It didn't take too long, though, and when he saw me, He went wide-eyed and pulled at his ties. Who are you? I waved my gun at him. What the hell's going on here? I expected him to be upset and a little scared considering the situation, but he looked more than scared. His eyes were rimmed with a lack of sleep. Let me go, man. Let me go. I want an answer. Who are you? When he kept struggling, I kicked him in the knee hard. He yelped. I asked him a third time. I'm just playing the game, man. It's what I was told to do. He started crying. Told what? I started playing that challenge thing, man. The Momo challenge. I looked it up. I thought it was some horse shit. I gave them all fake info so they couldn't dox me. But it figured me out. I relaxed the grip on my gun, but just a little. Who figured it out? It asked me to kill myself. It would tell everything, everyone about me. All the things I've done, unless I did it, I, I did it, I, I told it to screw off. But then the messages, the pictures, they stopped, it just said it was coming for me. He sniffed, <laughs> and it did. He looked over at the locked door. I went downstairs in my basement, it came for me in there, but I got away, I locked it in there, but it kept talking, it kept saying it would come for me, it would get me, unless I passed on the game. He looked at me, I started getting texts, I got information, I told him to off himself like I was told. I was hoping he wouldn't mail me back, but then when you did, and then it told me since the plan didn't work, I needed to feed it, or else it would get me. He broke down and cried again. I'm sorry, man, I'm sorry, I didn't know, I haven't slept in weeks, I barely even know what's happening anymore. I looked at him, he looked downright pathetic, sitting in that chair, bawling away. And i looked over at the knife he took my son from me and he planned to kill me i felt no sympathy for his sick pathetic ass i smashed the gun across his face he screamed please please i said i was sorry i grabbed his chair i pulled it over to the basement door you scumbag you killed my son my son And you think lying to me about some, some stupid scaring into murdering him will make me feel sorry for you? He saw me unlatch the door. His eyes widened again. No, no!
1: Stop, please! Please don't! Don't do it! I'll do do anything!
0: I opened the door. I saw the stairs leading down into darkness. Perfect. I leaned back and kicked his chair. He screamed as the chair tumbled down the stairs. He landed at the bottom. I saw him laying there, sprawled, sobbing, and yelling. My leg!
1: My leg! Oh God! Oh God! Please help me! now! Oh God!
0: I went to shut the door when I saw it. The long, thin pair of arms reaching out from the darkness into the light of the kitchen. The hair, long, black, scraggly the bulging eyes the body that was not on a chicken monster but on a thin pale frame with a dirty grey tank top and its hideous smile it didn't look like Momo not exactly but it was nothing human it dragged the chair slowly back into the darkness I didn't think his screams could get any louder but they did I slammed the door hatch back into place. I waited, unsure what to do. The screams ended abruptly. A minute later, just on the other side of the door, I heard a thin woman's voice.
1: Are you ready to play with me?
0: I drove home faster than I've ever thought possible. It's been weeks since then. I haven't heard from the police. I haven't heard from anyone about a missing person. It's just quietly gone away from our lives. I know that there are some sick people out there that get their jollies from torturing and frightening children. I sincerely hope you can protect your kids and that they are never exposed to it. I also hope that someday what I saw in that basement will give them exactly what they deserve. But I will not give out that weird secondary number that I used. I know it's not some kind of angel that punishes the wrong people. It's not safe. I know because I got a text the other day on my phone and I erased it, but it's still in my mind. I'm
1: out now. Let me know when you're ready to play. The
0: Eisenhower Interstate Phenomenon Written by Anonymous Little known fact is that the Eisenhower interstate system is built over major ley lines. Rumor has it that if specific conditions are met, weird phenomenons will occur. Phenomenon of the First The first sign of this phenomenon is that you will lose all radio reception, and devices such as mp3 players, discmen, tape decks and other music players will cease function. Your heater will begin to only dispense cold air, regardless of setting. After the first mile of this, you will notice a fog growing at the edges of the road, and you will see no exits, regardless of whether they were there or not. If you continue on, you will begin to see the occasional pedestrian. Some of them will gesture that they would like to hitch a ride. Under no circumstances should you stop for them, No one has ever stopped and survived. If you see lights approaching from behind and it is a hearse, do not let it pass you, no matter what. After 13 miles, the phenomenon will end and you will be safe. Phenomena of the Second Investigated by the witnesses after they read the instructions they found in a book left behind in a rest stop bathroom. Participants must mix a shot of whiskey... A drop of their own blood, one drop for each participant, a pinch of salt, and a small amount of used engine oil, mixed with water from a rest stop fountain in a glass bottle, and smash it on the interstate in the evening or morning. If the instructions were followed correctly, the way will become densely foggy, and all unmarked exits will appear, and if you pass by, it will be close to you for six years. If you take the exit go left and under the interstate. Half a mile down the road is an old gas station. Inside, it's said that a full glass of coffee sold there will keep you awake all night. And the other food and beverages are purported to have various properties themselves. Pay the proprietor only in metal coinage. No bills, no checks, no cards. There are also arcade machines near the back of the store, as well as an old fortune-telling wizard in a glass case. He knows how you will die. Accept no sexual favors that are offered to you while there, and do not anger anyone. Your life depends on it. Something really weird happened to this post. It had the entire thing, and comments. I remember approving like three comments on this entry when it was first posted. But apparently at some point that changed and half the post went missing, and the comments got closed. It also lost its category, making it the only thing that is uncategorized. Sections that previously didn't exist. I have no idea when or how, and didn't even notice until someone in the pawn shop puzzle comment section pointed it out. Creepypasta.com is haunted. I'm a search and rescue officer from the US Forest Service. I have some stories to tell. Written by Search and Rescue Woods I wasn't sure where else to post these stories, so I figured I'd share them here. I've been an SAR officer for a few years now, and along the way I've seen some things that I think you guys will be interested in. I have a pretty good track record for finding missing people. Most of the time they just wander off the path or slip down a small cliff, and they can't find their way back. The majority of them have heard the old stay-where-you're-at thing, and they don't wander far. But I've had two cases where that didn't happen. Both bother me a lot, and I use them as motivation to search even harder on the missing persons case I get called on. The first was a little boy who was out berry-picking with his parents. He and his sister were together, and both of them went missing around the same time. Their parents lost sight of them for a few seconds, and in that time... Both the kids apparently wandered off. When their parents couldn't find them, they called us, and we came out to search the area. We found the daughter pretty quickly, and when we asked where her brother was at, she told us that he had been taken away by the bear man. She said he gave her berries and told her to stay quiet, that he wanted to play with her brother for a while. The last she saw of her brother, he was riding on the shoulders of the bear man and seemed calmed. Of course, our first thought was abduction, but we never found a trace of the other human in the area. The little girl was also insistent that he wasn't a normal man, but that he was tall and covered in hair, like a bear, and that he had a weird face. We searched that area for weeks. It was one of the longest calls I've ever been on, but we never found a single trace of that kid. The other was a young woman who was out hiking with her mom and grandpa. According to the mother, her daughter had climbed up a tree to get a better view of the forest, and she never came back down. They waited at the base of the tree for hours, calling her name before they called for help. Again, we searched everywhere, and we never found a trace of her. I have no idea where she could possibly have gone, because neither her mother or her grandpa saw her come down. A few times, I've been out on my own searching with a canine. And they've tried to lead me straight up cliffs. Not hills. Not even rock faces. Straight. Sheer cliffs with no possible handholds. It was always baffling. And in those cases, we usually find the person on the other side of the cliff. Or miles away from where the canine has led us. I'm sure there's an explanation, but it's sort of strange. One particularly sad case involved the recovery of a body. A nine-year-old girl fell down an embankment and got impaled on a dead tree at the base. It was a complete freak accident, but I'd never forget the sound her mother made when we told her that happened. She saw the body bag being loaded up in the ambulance, and she let out the most haunting, heartbreaking wail I've ever heard. It was like her whole life was crashing down around her, and a part of her had died with her daughter. I heard from another SAR officer that she killed herself a few weeks after it happened. She couldn't live with the loss of her daughter. I was teamed up with another SAR officer because we'd received reports of a bear in the area. We were looking for a guy who hadn't come home from a climbing trip when he was supposed to and we ended up having to do some serious climbing to get it where we figured he'd be. We found him trapped in a small crevice with a broken leg. It wasn't pleasant. He'd been there for almost two days, and his leg was very obviously infected. We were able to get him into a chopper, and I heard from one of the EMTs that the guy was absolutely inconsolable. He kept talking about how he had been doing fine, and when he got into the top, a man had been there. He said the guy had no climbing equipment, and he was wearing a parka and ski pants. He walked up to the guy, and when the guy turned around, he said he had no face. It was just blank. He freaked out and ended up trying to get off the mountain too fast, which is why he fell. He said he could hear the other guy all night, climbing down the mountain and letting out the most horrible, muffled screams. That story bothered the hell out of me. I'm glad I wasn't there to hear it. One of the most scariest things that happened to me involved the search of a young woman who got gotten separated from her hiking group. We were out until late at night because the dogs had picked up her scent. When we found her, she was curled up under a large rotted log. She was missing her shoes and pack, and she was clearly in shock. She didn't have any injuries, and we were able to get her to walk up with us back to the base. Along the way, she kept looking behind us and asking why that big man with black eyes was following us. We couldn't see anyone, so we just wrote it off as some weird symptom of shock. But the closer we got to base the more agitated this woman got. She kept asking me to tell him to stop making faces at her. At one point, she stopped and turned around and started yelling into the forest, saying that she wanted him to leave her alone. She wasn't going with him, she said. She wouldn't give us to him. We finally got her to keep moving, but we started hearing weird noises coming from all around us. It was almost like coughing, but more of a rhythmic and deeper cough. It was almost insect-like. I don't really know how else to describe it. When we were within the side of base, the woman turns to me, and her eyes are about as wide as I can imagine a human could open them. She touches my shoulder and says, He says to tell you to speed up. He doesn't like looking at the scar on your neck. I have a very small scar on the base of my neck, but it's mostly hidden under my collar, and I have no idea how this woman saw it. Right after she says it, I hear the weird coughing right in my ear, and I just about jumped out of my skin. I hustled her to ops, trying not to show how freaked out I was, but I have to say I was really happy when we left the area that night. This is the last one I'll tell, and it's probably the weirdest story I have. Now, I don't know if this is true in every SAR unit, but in mine, it's sort of an unspoken, regular thing we run into. You can try asking about it to another SAR officer, but even if they don't know what you're talking about, they probably won't say anything about it. We've been told not to talk about it by our superiors, and at this point we've all gotten used to it, that it doesn't even seem weird anymore. On just about every case that we're really far into the wilderness, I'm talking 30 or 40 miles, at some point we find a staircase in the middle of the woods, It's almost like if you took the stairs in your house, cut them out, and put them in the forest. I asked about it the first time I saw some, and the other officer just told me not to worry about it, that it was normal. Everyone I asked said the same thing. I wanted to go and check them out, but I was told, very empathetically, that I should never go near any of them. I just sort of ignore them now, when I run into them. Because it happens so frequently. The Thing Written by Anonymous There were two young boys named Trevor and Will. They spent most of their summer vacations hanging around town, looking for things to do. One hot August night, the boys were sitting on a fence by the main road. There was a cornfield just across the road. Suddenly, Trevor spotted something in the field. In the darkness, it was difficult to make out, but he he thought it looked like some sort of weird animal. He nudged his friend and pointed in that direction of the strange-looking figure. Will said he could see it, too, but the mysterious thing seemed vaguely human. The next thing they knew, the thing was gone. The boys craned their necks and scanned the field with their eyes. Out of the blackness came the thing. It slowly walked over to the edge of the field before disappearing again. Trevor and Will looked at each other, puzzled. What was that? asked Will. I have no idea, replied Trevor. No sooner had he said that than Trevor felt a clammy hand on his shoulder he turned around and found himself staring directly into the hideous face of the thing. He let out a yell of terror and surprise. The rotting skin on the thing's face was coming off in several places, revealing the bone underneath. For a moment, it just stared silently at Trevor with its dark, sunken eyes. Then, it suddenly grabbed the hold of his arm, Trevor felt his fingernails dig into his flesh as he wiggled out of his grasp. The two boys leaped off the fence and ran down the road, screaming in horror. They didn't stop running until they reached their homes. They tried to tell their parents and friends about the thing that they had seen that night, but nobody believed them. When Trevor woke up the next morning, the scratches on his arms were still there, After a few days, they got worse and worse. Trevor got sick and his parents took him to the doctor. After examining his arm, the doctor told the boy that it was infected and he gave some pills for him to take. Unfortunately, Trevor's condition got worse and worse. The infection spread to his entire arm and it wasn't long before his flesh was rotting and falling off. He was taken to the hospital but no matter what the doctors did, no treatment seemed to work. The infection spread throughout his whole body. Trevor was confined to bed and started to waste away. It seemed like he was beyond help, and as the days went by, he steadily grew worse and worse. His anguished parents could only sit at his bedside and cry as they watched their beloved son slowly rotting away before their very eyes. On the day that Trevor finally passed away, Will came to the hospital to visit him. When the boy walked into the hospital room and saw Trevor lying in bed, he was horrified. His friend looked exactly like the thing. Rap Rat, written by Canadian Cowboy. The terror begins. Ever heard of Nightmare? Like a lot of other games in the 90s, it came with a VHS which you timed with your play. The character on the video would give you instructions on what to do while you played the game in real time. Being a scaredy cat, I refused to play it when my mom brought it for us. My brother was disappointed about not being able to play Nightmare, but my mom had a solution. She brought out Rap Rat. It was a cheap, dingy little thing catered to kids my age. You went around the board, collected cheese, and the first player to reach the end would win. It seemed simple enough, and since it reminded us of Mousetrap, which we didn't have, there was no objection. We popped the movie into the VHS and set up the board. The first part of the video was just a simple explanation of the rules, as well as instructions on how to play the game. Then... Rap Rat came onto the TV. He was not what any of us had been expecting. My smaller brother, who was only three at the time, immediately left the room crying. The rap did not even resemble a rat. The ears were far too big. It had a mouth lined with two teeth, and the inside of the mouth looked almost swollen. The most striking part about this thing, though, was the eyes. They were large, classy, and fish-like. I asked, then bothered, then begged my mom to turn it off. Rat Rat suddenly shouted loudly, screaming and wailing, saying,
1: Wait your turn!"
0: In a demonic, low-pitched voice that was not at all like his normal, obnoxious, nasal voice. In the background, we could hear the narrator saying,
1: He's Rat Rat. And he's the boss.
0: Over and over again, in an overly serious tone. The video was indescribable. Images crossed the screen in quick succession, overcut with rap rats, expressionless eyes. The images were some of the things I was afraid of at the time. A person looking over a balcony, a hornet slowly stinging someone's eye, an extreme close-up, Of a tarantula. A pit full of cobras. And a bloodied syringe filled with green fluid. We immediately turned the video off. And I ran out of the room screaming. Slamming my door. It took my mom 20 minutes to convince me that the video was gone. That I would never ever see it again. I had nightmares all week about Rap Rat. That wasn't the last time I saw Rap Rat. While my girlfriend and I were preparing to move in together, I was cleaning out the closet of my room and found Rap Rat again, with the same VHS and the same board game inside. It was almost perfectly intact, save for a thick layer of cobweb and dust bunnies on top of it. This was strange. Didn't my mom get rid of it? And what was the game doing in my room? I let out a bit of a gasp when I found it, and my girlfriend came into the room asking what was the matter. Breathing harshly, I said, <laughs> Rap Rat. She laughed a bit, asking if it was a joke. I shook my head, explaining that it wasn't. She didn't believe me. Nobody did. And I decided that the only way to prove it was to show her the video. I borrowed my neighbor's VHS and played the video for her. However, the images had changed. I saw a clown, its nose bursting and spraying blood into the screen. I saw a woman alone in the dark room. I saw a man being forced to pick up a white hot metal and hold it in his outstretched hand, turning his hand into a leathery mess. The screeching I heard as a child continued, picking up louder and louder. Then Rat Rat showed up and began twisting and convulsing its arm thrusting this way and that. The costume wasn't a costume anymore. The felt was real fur. Its face wasn't plastic, but instead a bristol of thorns with teeth. The eyes turned inwards and suddenly popped out again. Rap Rat's huge fish eyes were inside out, staring right at me, watching my every move. My every expression It grinned widely and gestured at my girlfriend and I, with a single, outstretched, inhuman hand. I could hear the faintest screeching at my front door. The TV went blank and showed static, the scratching got louder. It wasn't scratching anymore, but thumping. The thumping of tiny feet on wood. My girlfriend embraced me in fear, and my senses kicked in, before anything else could happen stopped the video, ejected it, and unplugged the VHS. When I looked out the living room window, nothing was there. The police showed up soon after, warning us that the neighbor had seen a figure outside of our door and he had called it in concern. My girlfriend and I simply couldn't explain what just happened, and had to tell the police officer that it was us. I was furious that a children's game was terrifying me. I went to pick up the tape but the VHS burned my hand. It felt like I had touched the Bunsen burner on the highest setting. We had to get the oven mitts from the kitchen in order to take it out. And even then, it was scorching hot. I brought it outside, tossed it down on the sidewalk, and crushed it with my winter boots. My girlfriend and I had nightmares every night. We would both wake up in the middle of the night, and describe eerily similar images that we saw in our sleep. The scratching would always be there at night, when lights were off and the room was pitch black, save for the moonlight coming through the window. Now, though the scratching would always happen every night, I went near the front door, and every time we said Rap Rat's name, it sounded as if something very small was dragging something across the ground outside of the door. Pacing. Waiting. I would simply wait with the covers pulled up to my neck until I succumbed to exhaustion. At this point, I was determined to sue the company for damages. The first thing I did was call my mother and ask where she got Rap Rat. She had no idea. I found a merchant who sold the version of Rap Rat and asked how he got in touch with the company. He sent me this email I don't know about the game but I know it was created by the same people who created Nightmare. The company is called A Couple of Cowboys. Try them. I did a bit more research and discovered that the company became defunct in 1994, only two years after the company created Rap Rat. I discovered why they did soon after. How Rap Rat came to be. In 1992, the year of the game's development, a couple of cowboys had commissioned a manufacturing company in Haiti to create the doll portrayed in the game. The company who created the puppet ran a sweatshop where they forced women and children to produce various components of the puppet, including the felt and plastic of the doll. One day a young Haitian girl got her arm caught in the industrial sewing machine. The spring loader unable to handle the weight of the machine came loose and struck the child's neck killing her instantly. A few days after the funeral, the mother of the child came to the factory, demanding to see the owner, who denied that he had anything to do with it. In a fit of rage, the mother said that the blood from the innocent would seep into every crevice of the doll, every component with which it was created, and all who touched it would die. Apparat will curse you, The owner simply laughed and told his corporate boss about Apparat. They spread the joke from person to person, and the game was renamed Raprat, a loose anagram of Apparat. Each recreation of the name Apparat brought with it a greater and greater curse. Only two years after Raprat was created, the company was shut down and the owners hired by Mattel. There were stories of workers begging for days off, skipping work for weeks and weeks, finding the puppet in the strange places. Sooner were the stories of suicides, grim, violent suicides in which the workers would stab their hands and burn themselves to death. Writing, I am fear on the nearest surface in blood. Nobody knows where the rap rat doll went after the original creators disappeared. Some say that the last thing the victim saw before going insane were large, sunken, fish-like eyes. Words of warning. Never, ever say Apparat out loud. If you have already done this, it cannot be undone. Do not try to speak to or contact Apparat. Avoid being awake between 3.30am and 4am when raprat. It's the most likely to try to scare you. The audio. The VHS is back. I thought I stomped on it, smashed it into Kingdom Come, but it's back. I found it in my sock drawer yesterday. This time, I was ready. A whole bunch of people were contacting me, trying to get the tape or some sort of video from the board game. My answer to you is that it's just too dangerous. If I did that, I could very well drive you insane scare you to death. The video and the game, and Rap Rat itself, has some sort of strange power. Rap Rat follows me everywhere I go. I see little shadows in the corner, or hear sounds coming down the hallway, when I'm the only one home. If Rap Rat is there, it will let you know, but it will never let you see it, until it's too late, of course. A lot of people have been watching the normal video from the normal board game. That's the thing. Rap Rat can't be normal. It will trick you thinking it's just a puppet and then stalk you day and night. God's Attic, written by Christian Thompson. The boy heard the soft tinkle of a bell as he entered the shop. It was cool and dark inside, not at all what he had expected. Scattered around the small store were all sorts of items, everything from teddy bears to cuckoo clocks. could be seen each item set carefully upon neat wooden shelves or displayed within a glass case against one wall. A faint, musty smell, like old clothing, tinged the air. Something about the shop was unsettling, everything frightening. Perhaps it was the dark, or the smell, but it seemed to Toby that this was a dark place, maybe even a dangerous one. As far as he could see, he was the only one in the store. Hello? He called out tentatively. Is there anyone in here? Only dark, musty silence greeted him. He began to turn towards the door, thankful for an excuse to leave, when a voice spoke behind him.
1: Leaving so soon?
0: It asked. Toby spun around to see a tall, thin man leaning lazily against one of the glass display cases. Toby stared at the man, sure he had not been there before. (coughs) He let out a soft chuckle, then took a few strides towards Toby. Toby drew back unconsciously, as the man drew nearer.
1: Now, my dear boy, he said, sounding hurt. There's no need to be frightened. I don't bite.
0: The store owner was quite a sight. He resembled a human toothpick, dressed in a tux of purple velvet and red bow tie tied around his collar. A tall silk top hat, the same color as the tuxedo was perched atop his head. The wide brim of his hat combined with the gloom of the shop bathed his face in shadows. Though Toby could just make out a large, pointy nose above a pencil-thin mustache, the only feature that could be clearly seen with his eyes, which were a bright neon green. But no, Toby watched in amazement as his eyes switched colors, flicking from green to red to blue, Then back to green who who are you toby asked the mysterious man extended one long fingered hand encased within an orange silk glove
1: allow me to introduce myself
0: he said his voice reminded toby the kind of sleazy used car salesman that always shows up in movies
1: walter o whimsy
0: he announced
1: Privy are of rare and desirable artifacts at affordable prices.
0: Despite the man's cheesy exterior, Toby found that there was something eminently likable about the shop owner. He took the hand, shook it, releasing it quickly. There was something unpleasant about touching the man. His skin experienced a slight tingle when he touched the hand, like one of those prank stick of gums. At shock, whoever pulls it. Please to meet you, Mr. O'Whimsey, he said, rubbing his hand against his pant leg and using the polite voice he always used with his father had people over from work. I'm... Toby, O'Whimsey said, and jaw dropped. Toby Daly, I believe. But how, how did you know? The boy was flabbergasted.
1: I have a knack for guessing names,
0: he replied, and winked at Toby. So? He said, his manner becoming more businesslike.
1: What brings you to my humble shop?
0: Well... The boy said. The truth was, he didn't really know. He had simply been passing by the shop when he felt the urge to enter the strange building. I just... A whimsy gave a soft not quite sinister laugh.
1: Yes, he said quietly. My shop does have that effect on some people.
0: What is this place, anyways? Toby asked, looking around the assorted items found all around the dingy room.
1: This, this, my dear boy, is God's attic. Gathered here are some of the greatest treasures of the world and others.
0: The man turned walking towards the glass display case. Come.
1: Come on, my boy. Let me show you.
0: Toby followed the man in the case. Owimsy drew a small golden key from his breast pocket, formed into the shape of a delicate question mark, with a purple gem set into the end. Dimly, Toby could see Owimsy's broad smile within the shadows of his face. He slipped the key into the lock before dropping it back into his breast pocket. Look here, he said, pulling a small glass file, carefully stoppered from within the case. Inside was a slim black strand that Toby's first mistook for a crack on the glass. This, O'Wimsby said with grandeur,
1: is said to be the hair of Samson. They say whoever possesses it will possess herculean strength.
0: Toby looked at the hair with wonder. It couldn't be true of course but something a feeling deep in his soul told him that it was. He was about to ask the price when a whimsy slipped it back quickly into the case. He then drew out a very old book carefully bound in white leather. On the cover were golden ruins that no one in the world could translate. This, oh, whimsy, said,
1: is one of my proudest pieces. Unlike many of my others, it authentically is assured that this, my dear boy, came from the shelves of the great monk himself, from the library on the edge of forever.
0: Toby was not really listening. Something else had caught his attention. He pointed to it with wonder. "'How much for that?' he asked. A whimsy looked where he was pointing. Sitting on the second shelf of the display case was a small golden ring, set carefully upon a square of purple cloth.
1: "'Ah, yes,'
0: Owimsy said, placing the book back in the case." He withdrew the ring, holding it in his palm, for Toby to see.
1: This, Toby, is said to date back to the 11th Egyptian dynasty, a possession of King Metuobtep himself, I was told from the man who gave it to me. He also told me that it possesses fabulous power and that it will change the life of its wearer in wonderful ways.
0: As with Samson's hair. Toby knew it could not be true, but found himself believing it anyways. "'What ways?' he asked, eyeing the ring and thinking of the chains that clinked metallically in his pocket.
1: "'That I cannot say,'
0: a whimsy admitted.
1: "'I myself have never tried it on for fear that in reality it is but an ordinary ring, void of any power.' an old man afraid to have his hopes and dreams dashed, I suppose. Silly, really.
0: Could, could I? Toby began and his voice sounded distant and far away. All of his focus was upon the ring in Owimsy's palm. Could I try it on?
1: Of course.
0: The man said. His grin broadened and his eyes began to sparkle with an otherworldly light Toby took the ring from Owhimsey's outstretched hand carefully not to touch the man's palm the metal felt cool against his skin and he felt a shudder of pleasure as he touched it as he slipped into his finger he was amazed at how perfectly it fit not too loose not too tight He felt a surge of power rush up through his finger, across his body, and then, nothing. Well? Owimsy asked. His voice sounded eager. Toby shook his head in disappointment. Nothing. When Owimsy spoke, he sounded let down. Well, he said,
1: these things do happen.
0: He paused and then spoke again. He sounded brighter this time.
1: Well, I can't very well sell a magic ring that isn't magic. He laughed. If you want, you can keep it. Free of charge. Toby looked
0: up at Owimsy with gratitude. Despite the letdown, he still wanted the ring. Still liked the way it felt on his finger. The way the light caught the etch hylogrificed upon the gold surface. Really? He asked.
1: Of course. You strike me as a good kid. Go ahead and take it.
0: Thanks! He said, looking again at the ring, admiring its beauty. He turned, walking towards the door. O'Wimsy gave a wave, which Toby returned. Bye, Mr. O'Wimsy. I won't forget this. As the boy left, the thing that called itself Walter O'Whimsy sunk back into the shadow at the back of his shop, smirking in satisfaction. No, he said, lighting up a thin white cigarette that he seemingly pulled from thin air.
1: No, I don't think you will.
0: Moments later. Toby was more than halfway home when he became aware of the strange and frightening power of the ring. He looked down at his hand to admire it once more, when, to his shock, over half of his hand was simply gone. The ring was still visible on his finger, but the finger itself was nowhere to be seen. It appeared to be floating in thin air. He screamed, but he was alone on the back country road. He tried to pull the ring from his finger but his fingers went right through it where his hand should have been. He grabbed the ring but he was unable to move it. He screamed again in terror as the invisibility began to spread creeping up the back of his hand to his wrist and up his forearm. He could no longer feel the limb at all and he realized with horror that he was not only turning invisible his body was actually disappearing. He tugged and tugged at the ring but it wouldn't budge it simply hung suspended in the place where his hand should have been he began to panic this couldn't be happening this couldn't be real the image of the shop owner flashed through his frightened and confused mind and a whimsy suddenly seemed less like a friendly old man and more like satan himself toby shirked his backpack tore off his shirt his arm was completely gone And his chest was beginning to dissolve as well. His legs, his other arm, going, going, gone. Toby felt the strange sensation, the feeling of nothing touching his neck, creep up on it, over his face. Frantically, he felt his mind slipping, falling apart. He began to forget things. Where he was, where he was going, who he was. Until finally, nothing more remained of Toby Daly. The ring fell to the ground, landing in the dusty road, glinting innocently in the bright sunlight. Thank you for joining me on this week's episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe